This is Here It Now on Prairie Public. I'm Doug Hamilton, and today we're going to talk about a new strain of norovirus and some other things that are going around. This strain strikes quickly. It's very contagious. In some cases, some people are even using the word dangerous about it. But is that hype or is it a real problem? We're going to get the lowdown from people who ought to know. They're experts in this area. Dr. Augusto Alanto is Sanford Infectious Disease Specialist and Department Chair. And Joan Cook is Sanford Director of Prevention and Control. Joan deals with the healthcare environment, the hospital or a nursing home's infection issues. And Dr. Augusto Alanto is the guy who diagnoses these things and, and uh, provides treatment. So let's start about with the norovirus. Uh, Joan, uh, what's new about this? Well, one of the things that I think that a lot of people aren't aware of, um, there, there is a new strain um, mm-hmm. that, that we are seeing, but a lot of people aren't really familiar with the, with the existing strain that we've seen of norovirus. It's been around for some period of time. It's a, a common cause of gastrointestinal illness and food poisoning. Uh, people aren't aware of the fact that it's got a very, very short incubation period. So from when you're exposed to when you get sick, can be as short as, as um, 12 hours to a, to a, a day or so. Um, before you become symptomatic, and you can actually spread the infection before you become ill. Wow. And uh, this new strain is called the Sydney strain. What's special about it? <laughs> Anything, Dr. Alon? The Sydney strain is just uh, <coughs> originated in Australia, and um, it is what's causing a lot of the uh, outbreaks in the United States as well. As far as uh, the intensity of illnesses and the number of infections that it has produced in the United States. We still don't know that quite yet because it's still early in the season. Typically, the uh, norovirus uh, infections peak around January, and so we don't really have a lot of data yet based on uh, based on the, uh, the early uh, season that we have. Now, sometimes this is called like a, the cruise ship flu or whatever, uh, people in closed environments typically can pass it around pretty quickly, Joan. Uh, what should people look for in the environments we live in in, in North Dakota, in Fargo-Moorhead? One of the challenges that there is is because, as I mentioned, people can spread it before they, are, before they develop symptoms. So people can board onto a ship and be totally feeling well and then come down with this. It's spread by a, a number of ways. So it's highly infectious. It's spread fecal-oral contact, basically, with fecal material, millions of virus that would be present in somebody's stool, and you only need like 18 little virions in order to become infected. And can it aerosolize? It can aerosolize when people are vomiting. Mm -hmm. And then it's also very, very common in the environment. The environment can be contaminated. You can't kill it with freezing. You can't kill it with um, with heating, depending upon how hot you go. And it's also resistant to some disinfectants. Bleach is very effective. So it's easily transmitted um, on cruise ships. If people are going to take a cruise, you can go onto the Center for Disease Control website, and they have a, a vessel sanitation webpage where you can look up the cruise line, you can look up the cruise ship, it will tell you basically they have scores and you can go back and look at the history and what and what how that ship has been performing as it relates to norovirus. Now does it uh, does it hit nursing homes? Does it hit hospitals? It hits nursing homes more than hospitals because of the congregate setting that you have. It can be prevalent in um, any kind of a group setting. It can be prevalent in schools and daycares. And daycares, absolutely. Yes, and daycares, I, I'd heard last week that there are a couple that didn't have any kids in them that day. Uh, talk about the flu now. Every year we have our flu shots. Some people don't like to get them. I, I don't mind mine at all. Uh, but what should we know about the flu and flu shots? 
So influenza, uh, the flu or the influenza virus infection is a, also a contagious virus. Um, and it affects millions of, uh, of Americans on a yearly basis. It can be deadly, um, especially in the young uh, people and in the elderly. Um, one of the ways to prevent influenza infections or the flu would be to uh, get your uh, flu shot. Um, so it's, it is very important to, uh, to get the flu shot, even though uh, uh, the number of uh, cases we've seen seem to have peaked. It's never too late to get the, to get the flu shot. One of the pieces of the story that was being reported when we had the uh, spike in flu cases and, again, that recent spike in the norovirus cases was the uh, issue about people going to work uh, if they don't feel well. And one of the tricky things here is that some people might not have, uh, you know, a, a benefit for a sick day. So what should we do? <laughs> I, I fully understand that people may not have sick leave. And, uh, you know, and, I'm, and I guess I'm sympathetic to that kind of a situation. But I look at the social responsibility that we have to not spread infections to other people. And so if you go to work, you are potentially um, exposing your coworkers, depending upon your, your environment, customers, um, to, to infectious diseases. It's kind of tricky with norovirus because with norovirus, people really should stay home for 48 hours after their diarrhea has subsided. And most of us think that, you know, once the diarrhea is gone, it's okay to go back to work. And with influenza, people should really stay home until they don't have a fever for at least 24 hours, not taking any drugs to try to reduce their fever. So it's, it's very important that, you, that people follow those rules because otherwise they are potentially hazardous to other individuals. And hazardous and in some cases it can be fatal. Flu does kill people. You're right. Uh, flu kills um, <clears throat> many people each year, uh, in, uh, especially the elderly and, and uh, the younger uh, population. Well, a lot of these things we're talking about, uh, flu in particular, uh, has a different strain that uh, every year we have a virus or a, a vaccine that's manufactured to deal with the anticipated strain of the flu. Uh, that's pretty intense operation. It requires a little, you know, crystal balling, I imagine. Uh, are we always going to have to do it that way? Is, is every strain of the bacteria that, or every strain of virus that we want to inoculate ourselves against, is, is it going to always require that process or is there any research indicating a different direction? For the, for the flu, I think it is going to be like that on a yearly basis. But the hope is that in other viruses, uh, for example, uh, the HIV virus, where it can mutate to many different uh, strains within uh, a single person. Um, the hope is that um, the, vi the vaccine that uh, uh, can be developed will be, uh, <coughs> will be just one single vaccine for all the different strains that we see. Wow, that, that would be a breakthrough. It'd be a breakthrough. It'd be, uh, it'd be a, l a lot less costly since we don't have to manufacture different vaccines on a yearly basis. Um, but again, hopefully that is, uh, that's the case. Well, what's, what are the, uh, what's your news telling you about how long it's going to be until that uh, is the case? Um, for, uh, for HIV, we don't know. Okay. Um, you know, um, uh, when, I was, uh, when I was in medical school, I was told that the HIV vaccine will be ready in 10 years. Huh. 
And then when I was a resident, someone told me that the vaccine will be ready in 10 years. And I was just in a conference uh, the last couple of months, and I was told that the vaccine will be ready in 10 years. Okay, so oh, we know it's about 10 years out, I yes. guess. I, Joan, uh, you mentioned with the norovirus uh, that bleach helped get rid of it. Uh, I can't imagine wiping down an entire ship, but it has been done many times, evidently. Uh, there is another uh, issue uh, that has to do with bacterial infections, and that is the use of antibiotics and perhaps even the overuse of them because it gets in the way of their effectiveness. Uh, what, what, what would you like to tell people about antibiotics? Well, I think when it comes to antibiotic usage, um, I'll, I'll defer part of that to, to Dr. Um, Alanto. I think it's important for people to, to follow their, their physician's directions. So if a physician doesn't think that you need an antibiotic, you don't need an antibiotic. You don't use those to treat viral infections. It's important to take them exactly as they're prescribed. So if they're not really contact poisons, I mean, you have to have a certain amount of the drug in your bloodstream to be effective for a period of time. So if you're supposed to take your antibiotic for five days or for seven days, you should take it for the entire duration exactly as it is, um, as it is prescribed to you. That's the patient's responsibility. What's the doctor's responsibility? Because sometimes, uh, you know, doctors, prescribe this stuff even though they may not think it'll do any good. The doctor's responsibility would be to uh, determine whether the patient has a bacterial infection or other types of infection. Uh, most of the common colds or other respiratory infections that patients go to clinic for are caused by viruses. And if that's the case, then uh, then we should, the doctors should not uh, prescribe antibiotics because it will not work. Having said that, um, there are uh, people who have uh, pneumonias, for example, that are caused by, by bacteria that, uh, that need to be treated with antibiotics. And it's very important for patients to take the medications as directed by the doctors. Even though most of the time uh, patients feel better after three or four doses of antibiotics, uh, the whole course of antibiotics should be taken uh, uh, to prevent resistance. Joan, uh, one of the infections that we occasionally hear about taking place in healthcare environments like hospitals is this MRSA. Uh, what is it? MRSA is methicillin-resistant staph aureus. So staph aureus is a very common germ, and it's, it's a people bug. It's and present it's a bacteria? It's a bacteria, absolutely. And methicillin-resistant staph aureus is a specific strain of this germ that um, that antibiotics that we used to use, like or that we can use, like uh, methicillin, oxacillin, nafcillin, that class of antibiotics don't work against those infections. So the the difference really is is how the infection is treated. It's spread exactly the same way. You find it in the same places. It's not more communicable than than regular staph aureus. It is the difference is the treatment. And what happens to the patients? What are their effects? Um, MRSA uh, is uh, typically a little more difficult to treat than the regular run-of-the-mill Staphylococcus aureus, and uh, patients tend to be uh, sicker when they're infected by the MRSA uh, bacteria. Um, we do have antibiotics and other medications that we can treat patients with, um, but, um, but uh, typically it's just uh, more difficult uh, bacteria to treat. A few years ago, uh, institutions of any size were all putting together plans to deal with the bird flu. As it turned out, it uh, didn't um, amount to that much. But there was an awful lot of discussion about what we would do in the event of this pandemic 
and where we would put patients, for example, because we wouldn't have enough hospital beds or something like that. Uh, what is the potential for a really global pandemic that would, you know, result in this kind of uh, quandary? I think that's a very difficult uh, question to answer. Um, I think the likelihood of a global pandemic happening um, is, uh, is not very high at this point. Um, uh, for the most part, um, the infection control practices of the many different countries uh, uh, are, uh, are very good. And, um, and uh, when there is something that's discovered in one country, um, uh, uh, infection control practitioners and experts will, uh, will be able to hopefully uh, convene and, uh, and make some uh, recommendations to, to kind of prevent further spread from those areas. Sometimes it's hard uh, because, of, uh, uh, because of air travel, um, because people can get to different places quickly now and can, uh, and can spread infections quicker. But I think for the most part, uh, uh, the likelihood of a global pandemic of that magnitude uh, was, is, is low. I but think it's important for people to, under, to, to realize, though, when we had um, swine flu, H1N1, in, in 2009, there is a, a community collaborative. There is a group of people that meet that includes public health, the health care facilities, long-term care, the Fargo Public School System, the Warhead Public School System, all the colleges. It's really a community group, and we look specifically at how we would collectively address those types of issues and how we would work together. And that group met on a weekly basis just in preparation during swine flu. A lot of plans we never had to execute, obviously, but we wanted to be prepared. So in the event that something like that would happen, we would, we would have a response. But the one thing that jumps out at me about with the things that are called swine flu or bird flu are that this is a, a disease that's coming from another species. How common is that? Um, well, um, it's, it's, it's fairly common for some viruses to go from one species to another. Uh, for example, um, uh, you know, the uh, influenza virus can infect uh, many different types of, uh, of animals, chickens, birds, uh, and, and humans. So, uh, in <clears throat> uh, so it is common. However, um, I think when, uh, uh, more commonly, when a virus jumps from one species to another, um, the virulence of that virus is usually uh, lower uh, when it jumps from one species to another. So if it comes from chickens to humans or pigs to humans, typically the virulence of that virus is lower and it doesn't cause as much illness. All right. Well, thanks for joining me today to shed some light on these issues. Dr. Augusto Alanto, Sanford Infectious Disease Specialist and Department Chair, and Joan Cook, Sanford Director of Infection Prevention and Control. Thank you very much. Thank you. And we'll be talking with publisher Mike Jacobs at the Grand Forks Herald in just a moment. Support for this program is provided by the North Dakota Education Association, an organization of 8,000 school employees working to ensure great public schools for every child. Tonight's television lineup on Prairie Public starts with a This Old House Hour. Then at 8 Central, Doc Martin. 
and at 9, The Aviators, followed at 9.30 by Bluegrass Underground. Tune in tonight on Prairie Public. This is Here It Now on Prairie Public. I'm Doug Hamilton. In the background, the Biscuit Burners CD, A Mountain Apart. Thebiscuitburners.com for more information about that. Well, you've probably been hearing there's been uh, quite a lot going on at the Capitol when it comes to the discussion of higher education. There's controversy, frustration, anger even, and even a bill being proposed uh, dealing with the Chancellor's future. So to give us a little perspective, a little analysis here, we thought we'd link up with Mike Jacobs, the publisher of the Grand Forks Herald. He joins us from our studio in Grand Forks. Mike, thank you. You bet. Happy to be with you, Doug. Well, uh, tell us, give us the sort of the 10,000-foot view of this (laughs) issue. Uh, Orient us about higher education uh, and the legislature and this board that continues to be at odds with lawmakers. Well, of course, this is a recurring issue in the state's history. Uh, There has been trouble on a number of occasions uh, between uh, the uh, higher education system and the and the legislature most most notably I should say and the and the and the government most notably in uh, Bill Langer's time in the late 1930s when uh, there was a purge of faculty at NDSU uh, then the agricultural school of course um, and the response to that on the uh, on the part of uh, alums of the college was to initiate a measure that would remove the higher education institutions from the direct oversight of the governor and the legislature. That's the Board of Higher Education system that we have uh, today. Uh, there, have been other, there have been other crises over the years. Uh, listeners will be, uh, older listeners will be familiar with the effort in the 1970s to deny appropriation for the University of North Dakota uh, through the referral process. Uh, the state Supreme Court disallowed that on the grounds that the Constitution requires funding for the uh, institutions that are listed in the document. Uh, and then, of course, in the, uh, in the 90s and uh, early years of, the, of the, this century, there was trouble uh, uh, about the houses for the uh, presidents, about, uh, about the uh, granting of diplomas to Chinese students uh, at Dickinson State University, and on and on. So there's been there's been this recurring uh, theme. Uh, this particular case uh, arises. The immediate cause of this is a building being uh, that's planned for the University of North Dakota campus here in Grand Forks uh, that would basically house the university systems, the whole systems, uh, technology operations. It's not a UND building per se. It's a system building. And uh, in the course of the planning of the building, the, the chancellor apparently altered the plans that had been presented to the legislature, and uh, the president of the university drew this to their attention. And now we have uh, the brouhaha uh, in the state legislature <laughs> that we have. There were hearings on it this morning, of course. There's a bill uh, sponsored by uh, Senator Grinberg from Fargo that would essentially allow the Board of Higher Education to buy out uh, Shervani's contract at a cost of uh, somewhere around six hundred thousand uh, dollars, there are there's rumblings about uh, a new initiated constitutional uh, amendment that would 
reform the governance of the of the uh, of the colleges and universities, perhaps uh, creating a department of education responsible to the governor, uh, perhaps responsible to the legislature. I mean, there are there are differences of opinion about that. So you see, we have everybody with an interest in this, uh, and of course, there's nothing. You know this, Doug. There's nothing in North Dakota as emotional as uh, the, particularly the two uh, large universities, who produced a very, very large share of the movers and shakers in the state. The That's lawyers, true. the doctors, the newspaper editors, the agribusinessmen, you know, the company presidents, and so on, and the teachers' colleges, the 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 uh, Dickinson State University, Minot State, Valley City, and so on, uh, produced a lot of the teachers. So. So these colleges have most of the population of the state uh, in their grip in one way or another, not to speak of the uh, legislators from the, from, the, uh, from the communities in which they're located. And Ray so Holm- you've got a big, big, big interest group. Ray Holmberg today sided with uh, Higher Education Board President Dwayne Espigard, who essentially told uh, the committee in Bismarck today that, you know, back off. Let us do our job. Yeah, and of course that... You know that's the the uh, the board's position has been that you really have no business uh, in this issue. This is this is a a system issue, and you don't have uh, you don't have any kind of jurisdiction over it. Uh, and uh, apparently that is uh, uh, that is the way that they're going to try to tamp this down at least for the time being. But believe me, this is not an issue that's going to go away. Uh, this has this has a lot of legislators. Uh, uh, very, very unhappy uh, with the system, and particularly with the board as well. But particularly with this chancellor, who has just uh, made himself unpopular uh, in the state capitol. Well, buildings and money have been issues, as you mentioned before, between legislators and the higher education board, and presidents and chancellors and things like that. Uh, so there's nothing really new there, but the heat here is pretty intense, and you just wonder what was said to whom uh, <laughs> that uh, lit the fuse the way it's been lit. Uh, yeah, you, you, you do wonder. Uh, certainly uh, certainly the, the chancellor uh, has come into North Dakota with an agenda for, uh, for change, and it's seen as rapid change, maybe even abrupt change, uh, in many of the presidential offices, and in some, it's seen as uh, as destructive, and so there's a natural defensive reaction uh, among university presidents. This spreads to the legislature, of course, because uh, uh, each of the institutions has its built-in lobbying uh, uh, force with uh, with the local legislators. Uh, and one of the one of the big issues during much of my time as a legislative reporter, this is getting to be a while ago now was the annual or the semi uh, the, the biennial exercise known as the Christmas tree bill when legislators from each of the university or college districts would essentially go to the appropriations committee and hang a building on the on the on the, uh, on the appropriations bill and the, the, uh, akin to putting an ornament on the tree and uh, of course that was that was not efficient use of money nor an efficient way uh, you know, wasn't it wasn't in, it wasn't efficient in terms of instruction either, and so the effort has been made to to sort of rationalize the system, but but not everyone, in fact, maybe almost no one has accepted that that view of the uh, 
of uh, the way things ought to be handled. Well, just a few seconds left here, but uh, is your crystal ball telling you that we've hit the peak? This thing started about a week ago. Is it going to, or is it going to keep on unraveling? I think my my own sense is that it's going to keep on unraveling. Uh, I I think that that the chancellor has uh, has made uh, enough enemies in enough places that uh, it's going to be very difficult for him to recover. Uh, to recover the kind of ground he will need in order to push forward the reform agenda that uh, that I at least and I think others uh, observing higher education in the state believe is necessary. In other words, the system's probably not broken; it just has the wrong. Uh, they made it. They made a poor choice, and and uh, and uh, you're probably going to have to get beyond that somehow. I can see either. I can see several different scenarios, but I think that I think that the you know, the long knives are out essentially, and that they're pointed at uh, at Hamid Shervani and and not anywhere else. All right. Well, thank you, Mike Jacobs, uh, publisher of the Grand Forks Herald. Uh, we'll be in touch. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Doug. The news Bye-bye. is next. This is Here at Now on Prairie Public. I'm Doug Hamilton. And there's something special and new at the UND Special Collections uh, Department. That's the Elwin B. Robinson Department of Special Collections at the Chester Fritz Library on the campus. And joining us to talk about this is the director of the Elwin B. Robinson Department of Special Collections, Kurt Hansen. Kurt, thank you for joining us. No problem. Thank you for having me. This uh, new collection, Service and Sacrifice, Remembering the 164th Infantry Regiment in World War II, not a new collection, but a new exhibit, uh, talk a bit about this special group. Well, the, the 164th Infantry was the North Dakota National Guard during World War II. We've had the material, the, the collection in our department for about 15, 20 years, but we finally uh, were able to to set aside some exhibit space for them. We had a case that came open, so we've made this exhibit um, uh, highlighting the history of the 164. It's called Service and Sacrifice, remembering the 164th Infantry Regiment in World War II. So we've we've set aside this exhibit, and um, we're just trying to publicize its existence as well as the the collection itself. Well, it's a much storied uh, regiment. Uh, they go way back to the Spanish-American War. Yes, that's correct. Absolutely. And uh, they, I note from your publicity that they actually got their designation, the 164th Infantry Regiment, in 1917, going into World War I. Yes, that's correct. <laughs> and I also noted that when they were uh, activated again for World War II, they actually took training at Camp Claiborne, Louisiana, because my father took training at Camp Claiborne, Louisiana, and about that time, he, yeah. he enlisted in January of 41. As did my grandfather. He was, he was down there as well. Well, my dad always used to say ruefully he, he uh, guarded a bridge <laughs> somewhere in the middle of nowhere, Louisiana, and the chiggers, these little biting insects, made him miserable. Yes, yes, that's, that's common from people who were at Camp Claiborne. Well, there are still people, uh, survivors of, uh, of, of veterans, and a few veterans probably still left uh, that might have something to add to your collection. How, uh, what would you like them to do? Well, if they have, if anyone has material, whether it's the veteran themselves or, say, family members, if, if they've got material, you know, we're, we're an archive 
as opposed to a museum. So we we tend to like to collect things like uh, documents and and books and stories. But even if it if it is more artifactual in nature, uh, if they have material, we would be very interested in speaking with them. We're we're the official archive for the 164th. It's one of our most used collections, and certainly from my perspective, one of the collections that we are proudest of. And how do people use your archive, for for example, uh, to look into activities of the 164th? Well, we've had a couple people come in and take a look at the history of their ancestor who was in the 164. Um, We've had several people use it for uh, research papers and class presentations and that sort of thing. But but the main use by people not affiliated with UND is looking at uh, the history of their uh, family member who was in the 164. And this is a much storied regiment. Uh, I mentioned the Spanish-American War. They were also involved in the Mexican border conflict involving Pancho Villa, uh, World War One, World War Two, where they participated in the Guadalcanal campaign, which was a terrible uh, battle event in the Second World War. And famously uh, so well supported the Marines that they became, they got to wear the patch, the First Marine Division patch. Yeah, and that is that is truly very very interesting. They're they're considered honor, honorary Marines by that particular Marine regiment. <laughs> it, it's just so interesting that you know they went from you know your stereotypical North Dakota farm kids out here on the plains. Then they had a little bit of training. You know, you mentioned uh, Camp Claiborne, and then they're dumped into a tropical climate, just pitched battle in this island in the middle of nowhere in the Pacific Ocean. Yeah, you think only the Army can send folks from uh, the middle of the United States to Guadalcanal, and you'd think they'd go to Europe or something like that, uh, something more acclimated, but uh, (laughs) whatever. Uh, How about the actual exhibit? You've got a display case. How do you organize something like this? How do you select what you show? Well, um, thankfully, I have uh, – I'm the head of the department, but I've the, – the leader uh, on this project has been Daniel Sauerwein, who is a uh, Ph.D. student in the history department. And he was extremely interested in the 164. We had a case that was open, so he really took the lead in doing that. Uh, he has the exhibit or, uh, organized roughly chronologically. There's a mixture of – artifacts there's some photos the the centerpiece for the exhibit is really um there's a a famous poem that was written in a foxhole on guadalcanal Mm -hmm. and then right next to and that's framed then right next to that as well is a is a list of all the killed in action and died of wounds for the 164 for the entire world war ii campaign so those two things just really grab your attention and um, and Daniel did a heck of a job. It it really is a wonderful exhibit. And I noted that uh, Terry Shoptaw's book, They Were Ready, which is about the 164th Infantry, uh, is also uh, part of that exhibit. And I'm uh, that, I'm very glad that you brought that up because I I highlight Terry's book when I speak to to classes and community groups and such because the the story of the 164 had not really been told. They have a, a a newsletter that they put out. It's a very nice newsletter, 164th Infantry News. But their story had never been written in book form. And so I was so happy several years ago when Terry decided to do that. 
And um, that book is very much a, a it's a great book, and it's a it's a good starting point for anyone who's going to start looking in depth at the history of the one six four. And he's like you, a librarian and archivist uh, downstream at Morehead yes, State. Yes, yes, he's at Morehead State. Yes, <laughs> uh, let's talk or Minnesota State University Morehead. Yes, I was there when the name was changed, <laughs> but I graduated from Morehead State. Oh well, then you're good. You're good. Okay, then. Very good. Uh, what else does the uh, do the special collections have? Uh, I mean. It, it, You've got all this space. Uh, what do you collect? What are you gathering? Oh, in, in a general sense? Yes. Uh, we'll collect just about anything um, that deals with the history of, the, of, of North Dakota and as well northwest Minnesota. Um, you know, we took in um, just recently um, a, collect, uh, a collection of a car dealer in uh, Courtney, North Dakota. I don't even know where Courtney is, in all honesty. But he was interested. He knew of us, so he gave us the material. And what kind of material would that be? Well, there are there's uh, information in there about their sales, um, both both entire cars and then uh, you know parts. They had a fuel oil um, division as well. So there's ledger books. There's some correspondence between. Uh, customers and the the owners of the car dealership. Um, it's it's actually a, a smaller collection, but it 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 um, exemplifies the fact that we truly will collect just about anything that deals with North Dakota. And it sounds like uh, you're collecting things that are actually going to be fascinating to people in years to come. Well, that that's the whole idea. the 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 plan is that at some point. Someone is going to find this interesting, <laughs> you know. For for a collection like the one six four, it gets used all the time. We know people find it interesting. For something like Senator Dorgan's papers, Congressman Pomeroy's papers, we know that's going to get used. But with the Courtney Motor Club uh, example, we anticipate that at some point someone's going to be researching the automobile industry in North Dakota, perhaps looking at businesses in rural North Dakota, and they're going to find that collection interesting. Well, one of the interesting jobs of an archivist, a librarian, is is the organizational process. How do you keep track of everything? Well, we, we, we create what are called finding aids. It's basically just an inventory. It lists, it lists what's in the collection, lists a, a little bit of information about the person or the organization. And then as much as possible, we just list what's in there so that people have an idea of what is there. They can then contact us or come, come, um, come to the department in person and look through the material or we'll try to look look through the material for them and, and let them know what we find. And, of course, this, these days uh, the card catalogs have been replaced by all kinds of computer databases. I yes, assume. that's correct. That's <laughs> correct. The, the, the Internet has completely revolutionized things for – well, for libraries too, but especially for archives. Now, now do archives connect with each other? Um, in, in North Dakota, we very much do. Um, there's three main uh, archives in the state, the State Historical Society in Bismarck, the um, NDSU archives down in, in Fargo, and then us up here at UND. We very much um, cooperate. We're frequently uh, talking and speaking with each other, and we're also um, jointly on the, it's called the North Dakota State Historical Records Advisory Board. Well, aside, so. aside from the databases, uh, you know, uh, uh, 
Is there a way for people who may not want to travel to Grand Forks, to Chester Fritz, to the fourth floor there, to your archive area? They can go online and see items in your archive? They can certainly see um, the the finding aid for the collection. Okay. Um, as much as possible, if, if someone is truly far away and they can't come, they can send us an email. We, we do that all the time, and we can look through the, through the collection and let them know if we find anything. We also do have a cooperative interlibrary loan agreement with the other archives in the state. But there are lots of photographs, I assume, in an archive. Is there any plan or a process to put them online so they can be shared? We are, we are certainly working on that. We've digitized some photos uh, in regards to the history of the university, largely because we have the copyright for that. Um, so we are certainly working on, on digitizing materials. Now, you've got all this space at Chester Fritz on that fourth floor. Uh, do you have any idea of how many individual items you have? Well, I, I frequently tell classes that come that, you know, we've got about 1,500 individual collections, individual archival collections, of which the 164th Infantry is just one. And then we have, like, a right, right around 20,000 books. We've got uh, access to lots of databases. But when you get down to individual pieces of paper in all of those 1,500 individual collections, mm. it's going to be billions. <laughs> that's an awful lot of stuff to keep track of. And that's why we have to create good finding aids so that not only we but the future people in, who work in our department or the future people who research in those collections can find the material they're looking for. Well, what kind of people come through your doors? What? We truly have um, we have a very large genealogy collection, and because genealogy is one of the more popular hobbies nowadays, we have a substantial amount of our total patrons are unaffiliated with the university, just general people who are interested. We have a lot of uh, people coming in as well from the university, especially from the the history and English departments, but. We will, we will see just about anything. All right. Well, what people can see now is service and sacrifice, remembering the 164th Infantry Regiment in World War II. It's at the Elwyn B. Robinson Department of Special Collections at the Chester Fritz Library at UND. What are your hours, Kurt? Uh, our hours are Monday, Tuesday, and Thursday from 8 a.m. till 5 p.m., Wednesdays, we're open 8 until 9 p.m., and Fridays, it's 8 to 4.30. All right. Well, thank you very much for joining us today. Hey, thank you for having me. Kurt Hansen is director of the Elwin B. Robinson Department of Special Collections at the Chester Fritz Library. What's Happening is coming up. Hello, I'm Merrill Pepcorn, inviting you to attend the next live performance of Dakota Air, the radio show, 2 p.m. Saturday afternoon, February 16th, the Empire Arts Center in Grand Forks. Special guests are internationally acclaimed violinist and conductor of the UND Chamber Orchestra, Alejandro Drago, and the Chamber Orchestra will be there, too. And we'll be celebrating the newfound fame and celebrity of Grand Forks Herald columnist Marilyn Haggerty. Tickets at the Empire or any Grand Forks Gate City Bank. Dakota Air, Saturday afternoon, February 16th in Grand Forks. Arts programming on Prairie Public is supported in part by the North Dakota Council on the Arts, a state agency developing, promoting, and supporting the arts in North Dakota. Oh, 
That's the question. Hear it now. I'm Doug Hamilton, and Ashley Thornburg joins me, and we are asking, what's going on? What's happening? Ashley, what did you find? Sweet nothing. This is the premiere production of Theater B's Incubator series, and it examines the effects of violence and war through a fairy tale lens. And this is actually put on by um, a former Fargo resident, was the playwright there. It's at Theater B Thursday through Saturday at 7.30 and Sunday at 2 p.m. Adult tickets are $20 and student tickets are just 10 bucks. Well, I'm going to take us across the state to Williston where Entertainment Inc. proudly presents Still Life with Iris, a fantastical adventure. It's uh, going on today through uh, Sunday, and it's on again next week. Evening performances at 7.30. There are Sunday matinees February 10th and 17th at 2.30. Tickets are $13 for adults, $8 for students, and it's at the Old Armory Theater in Williston. I read about that one. I thought that sounded really interesting, that all the people there wear coats made of memories. Yeah, I thought so that I was think, a neat idea. Yeah. Uh, the Bismarck Mandan Symphony Orchestra is presenting an all-orchestra program featuring fairy t- uh, music based on fairy tales and high Highlights include Nikolai Rimsky-Korsakov's Shahirazad and Maurice Ravel's Mother Goose Suite. The, con- the concert takes place on Saturday, February 9th at 7.30 at the Bel Mayhus. Tickets are anywhere from 14 to $31. Well, they're going to be dancing at the uh, Empire Arts Center in Grand Forks, the Carnival of the Animals Ballet, Friday and Saturday at 7 with Saturday and Sunday matinees at 2 o'clock. You can follow a young girl's adventure who dreams of escaping to a place filled with excitement. It's at the Empire Arts Center, as I mentioned, 415 Demers Avenue. Tickets are available at Ticketmaster. Tickets are also available at the door of the Empire one hour before each performance. Admission $12 for students, college and under, and $15 for adults. Interested in quilting? Well, there's a club for that. Quilters and, yes, even beginner quilters gather on the second Saturday of the month. So in this case, that's February 9th at 1 p.m. at the James Memorial Center in Williston. And you can uh, discuss upcoming quilting projects, whether you have been doing this forever or are just getting started. One o'clock Saturday. I'm looking for a dinosaur lecture. It's at the Northwest Art Center's Alshire Theater on the campus of Minot State University. Smithsonian postdoctoral fellow and North Dakota paleontologist Tyler Lyson will discuss the lives and the demise of dinosaurs on the Northwest Art Center lecture series. That'll be Thursday, February 14th at 7 o'clock. Lecture is free and open to the public. Parking on the MSU campus is unrestricted after 5 p.m. <laughs> All right. The Lincoln Effect, How the Presidency Changed the Man and the Land. This is uh, one of the rotating exhibits at Bonanzaville in West Fargo, and it goes through the end of February. It is a look at the insight on Lincoln's influence in North Dakota. Um, it's Monday through Saturday, the hours at Bonanzaville, 10 to 5, and Sunday from noon to 5. Adults are $5 and children are 3, and this exhibit closes on March 1st. This really caught my eye, the UFDA Laughter Club. <laughs> Meet Saturday from 9 to 10 in the morning at the United Lutheran Church in Grand Forks. Laughter clubs are places where people gather and practice laughter as a form of exercise. Laughter as exercise develops your sense of humor, of course, and by creating the chemistry of happiness delivers many health benefits. So laugh yourself healthy Saturday morning at 9 at United Lutheran Church in Grand Forks. 
at the Moorhead Library this weekend, uh, Saturday at 9.30 and at, again at 11.30. There is uh, Science Time at the library, a range of science experiments from chemistry, biology, physics. Uh, this is put on by the Concordia Science Academy, again 9.30 and again at 11.30 at the Moorhead Library. I'm taking us to another library, the Campbell Library Poetry Contest at the East Grand Forks Campbell Library. Uh, they have a 2013 poetry contest sponsored by Glamorous Reruns. The entries can be submitted until February the 23rd. You can pick up full guidelines at the library or go online at egflibrary.org. Again, entries may be submitted at the library or mailed. So send in your poetry to the Campbell Library Poetry Contest. What's your pick? My pick for the week is uh, there is still time to see Literacy Without Borders. This is an exhibit at the Jamestown Art Center. It's a collection of photographs by Pam Reddig, a Bismarck teacher, professor, and researcher. And this closes on February 23rd. The exhibition explores Nigeria and Tanzania. Uh, through her work with the International Reading Association, UNESCO, and the World Bank, she actually works by training educators in third world countries to establish literacy. Literacy programs. Again, that exhibit runs through February 23rd at the Jamestown Arts Center. Hours are 9 to 5, Monday through Friday. I did call the director, though, and she said that uh, if you want to set up a weekend showing, that uh, that is absolutely, you're more than welcome to do that. So give the center a call during the week if you'd like to check it out on a weekend. Well, let me suggest the I Am a Person movie premiere presented by Development Homes at the Empire Arts Center in Grand Fork. This is a premiere showing of a new documentary entitled I'm a Person. It highlights the stories of several people with intellectual disabilities from around the state. It uh, was produced by Prairie Public in conjunction with the North Dakota Association of Community Providers with funding from the North Dakota Council on Developmental Disabilities and Prairie Public Broadcasting. So that is February 11th at the Empire Arts Center. I am a person, the movie premiere. So that's what's happening. Support for this program is provided by Basin Electric Power Cooperative of Bismarck, producing reliable electricity. Basin Electric operates generation stations in North Dakota, South Dakota, and Wyoming, including wind farms in North and South Dakota. This is Dakota Datebook for February 7th. Arthur Packard established the Badlands Cowboy newspaper at Medora on this date in 1884. Medora's first newspaper, the cowboy recorded the town's earliest history. A journalist with a fascination for cowboys, Packard headed west soon after his graduation from the University of Michigan. He became managing editor of the Bismarck Tribune, although the stint proved short due to his notorious temper. Packard resigned after throwing sundries at local critics. He moved across the river and worked on the Mandan Pioneer, but soon continued west to Medora. After converting a blacksmith shop into a makeshift printing office, Packard released the Cowboys' first issue. The owner, writer, editor, and manager of the paper, Packard once wrote, The Cowboys not published for fun, but for $2 a year. 
Today, Packard and his paper are best known for recording much of Theodore Roosevelt's life in the Badlands, as well as forecasting correctly young Roosevelt's future presidency. Roosevelt became close friends with the young editor and spent many hours telling stories and arguing politics in the cowboy's office. The future president claimed that he preferred the newspaper office to the town's many saloons, saying he avoided the booze joints because he liked chatting with the men who liked the smell of printer's ink to feel civilized. He believed that the saloons were the cowboy's nemesis, while Packard was, according to him, a good fellow, a college graduate, and a first-class baseball player. The Marquis de Mores also spent many hours in Packard's office. When locals accused the editor of bias favoring the Marquis, Packard replied that the Marquis was the paper's best advertising customer. But he never let his friendship with the powerful de Mores affect his editorial instincts. In the Cowboys' third issue, he wrote, We are not the tool of, nor are we beholden in any way to a man or set of men. Of course, the fact that Packard dined most nights in the Marquis Chateau did not help matters. Unfortunately, Medora's boom lasted only as long as the paper itself. A devastating fire in January of 1887 destroyed Packard's office. Along with most of the city's residents, Packard left Medora after that brutal winter, making the Cowboys' December 23rd issue its last. Today's Dakota Datebook was written by Jamie Job. I'm Errol Pepcorn. Dakota Datebook is produced in cooperation with the State Historical Society of North Dakota, with funding from the North Dakota Humanities Council. And for those of you up in the Minot area or around the state who know Tyler Leeson, my apologies. The North Dakota paleontologist will be speaking at the Elshire Theater on the MSU campus, February 14th at 7 o'clock. I should pronounce his name correctly. Tyler Leeson. Well, tomorrow on Hear It Now, James Speth headed the Council on Environmental Quality for the Carter Administration. He ran the United Nations Development Program, served 10 years as dean of the Yale School of Forestry and Environmental Studies, taught law at Georgetown and Yale. And of interest to folks in North Dakota is the fact that he was arrested for protesting the Keystone XL pipeline. He'll join us to talk about that and other things tomorrow on Hear It Now. In the meantime, have a great evening.